Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26 this morning. Luke 6, 20 to 26. Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. Please give your attention to the reading of it. And he, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the prophets. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask that he would bless our time in it this morning. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you have told us that all flesh is like the grass. It is a breath and then it is gone. And yet here before us we behold something eternal, something that was around long before us and will be around long after us, for your word does abide forever. Please grant that we would give our undivided attention to it and that you would grant a receptivity to all it has to say and that our beliefs, our understandings, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. All this we ask in the name of your Son, who is the Word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Just over 500 years ago, uh, Sir Thomas More uh, penned a book that is still being read today called Utopia, about a fictitious island uh, where everything was perfect. There was uh, no lack of food. Everyone had enough to eat. No one was poor. No one was oppressed. Uh, this idea of a utopia or a utopian society has, represents that an ideal that people have long sought after. A society, a place where there would where be no suffering, no poverty. There would be no haves versus have-nots. No selfishness, no oppression. It would be heaven on earth. We see this desire all around us. We have activists who tell us that we can end world hunger, that we can eradicate poverty, and that we are on the cusp of medical breakthroughs that will rid the world of cancer, uh, dementia, uh, and eventually all sickness. The idea, at least among most today, is that with enough cooperation, ingenuity, and time, we 
can create a perfect society. We can end oppression, we can, we can make suffering a distant memory, a thing of the past, and this idea is not new. It has been around for a long time. This is what drove the Tower of Babel. This is what they were pursuing. They believed if they came together, worked together, and worked hard enough, they could unite heaven and earth. And really, there are two ways of of looking at the world. You can see this world, this life, as all you have with the fundamental belief that suffering not only can but must be eradicated, that, that we can fix everything if we try and we must try. Or you can believe that this world is not all there is, that there is another world yet to be revealed on the last day and that this world is fallen and broken because of our rebellion against God, and that suffering in this world is a consequence of seeking to do things our way, and that the solution to end suffering is outside our ability, something we cannot fix. More than this, if you believe that, that second idea, you will also believe that suffering is actually helpful and beneficial because it teaches you to long for a better world, to long for redemption, to not place your hope in that which cannot last. Those who believe this are convinced that a world with no suffering would actually lull mankind into an unsafe slumber where that world fails to ask the bigger, the more important questions. And that would not be a blessing. That would be death by a thousand kisses. And so today we want to look at a familiar passage known as the Beatitudes. And we want to first define Beatitudes and see what they are and aren't. And then we want to see how they are really uh, about our identity more than they are about our circumstances. They're about our identity more than our circumstances. And then finally, we want to see how they teach us to respond to the afflictions of this life in a way that honors our Lord. And my hope is that when we do all of this, we'll see that those who understand that their inheritances in heaven are blessed, no matter what life throws at them. Those who understand this are always blessed, period no matter what life brings. That's what I will hope to show you uh, from this beautiful passage today. Now there, I said it's a familiar passage, and as with most familiar passages, there uh, tend to be some misconceptions. Uh, the Beatitudes are recorded here, as well as Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Some people believe that the Beatitudes are really commands, that what, what Jesus is saying is, be poor, be hungry, weep, be hated, and things like that. Uh, some believe they're classifications, right? That these are different kinds of Christians. There are hungry Christians, there are poor Christians, there are weepy Christians, uh, there are hated Christians. You need to figure out what kind you are, and so on. But really, what most misconceptions do with the, the, the Beatitudes is they reduce them down to conditions, so that what they believe Jesus is saying is something like this. You are blessed if you are poor. You are blessed if you are hungry. You are blessed if you are weeping. You are blessed if you are hated. 
and so on. But that's not what's going on here. These are blessings that belong to all Christians. Jesus is lifting up his eyes upon his people and he's declaring, he's pronouncing blessings on them. He's telling them that they are already blessed and they will be blessed on the last day. These are declarations meant to help his people understand a reality beyond their apparent circumstances. To actually learn to see blessing in poverty, blessing in hunger, blessing in grief, blessing in being hated. That's what he's telling them. And he has to tell them this because it's not obvious. Maybe it's just me, but I don't tend to think of poverty, hunger, grief, and ostracism as blessings. At minimum, I think we tend to think of these as unfortunate and possibly as a sign of God's displeasure and even cursing in our lives. We see wealth, abundance, laughter, and acceptance as blessings. And we see them as blessings because they're things that we want. They're desirable. And how do we think? We think like this. I want these things, therefore if God loves me, he'll give me these things that I want. Think about how many people assume that because they have wealth or power or popularity that God is pleased with them. How many times have you heard someone going through a hard time wonder if God is displeased with them? Isn't that what Job's, uh, I would say friends, but let's just call them counselors, said to him? If you're suffering, you must have displeased God. Figure out what you did wrong, repent, and everything will be better. And this is how the world thinks, and this type of thinking has really, if we're honest, infiltrated the church. What churches do we tend to think of as the most successful? The ones who have a lot of people and a lot of money. And a lot of popularity. Models to be emulated. It's easy when, when, when success like that comes along for churches to say things like, with numbers like these, we must be doing something right. God must be pleased with us. Being poor and hungry and sad and hated are not things we desire. And Jesus knows this. That's why he has to say something. If he doesn't, we'll think that God thinks the way we do. We'll think that earthly riches, abundance of food and popularity can only lead to good things. And yet deep down, we know that that's not the case. We know that those who get everything they want are often the worst people. We know that those who have never been hungry, don't know gratitude. We know that the most popular people are seldom the best people. But we want to believe that we can be rich and good, that we can be full and grateful, that we can be popular and right. And so Jesus turns everything on its head. He says, 
that his people are not the rich of this world. And that's a blessing. He says that his people will know what it is to be hungry. And that's a blessing. He promises that those who follow him will be hated. And that's exactly what they should want. So let's slow down a bit and see just exactly what Jesus is and isn't saying. Some have taken this passage to mean that if you have a certain amount of money or more, that you can't be a Christian. What amount that money is typically depends upon how much money the person saying this has. Others have taken it to mean if you're poor, you're automatically okay. That God owes you something in the next life. In other words, these words have been used to draw an indelible line between the wealth of the world and the poverty of the world. And salvation, when that's done, simply becomes a consequence of your personal wealth and your bank account. Now, I hope it's obvious that this is not what this passage is saying. First of all, there have been times when God has blessed some of his children with extreme wealth. Job, Abraham, uh, Jacob, uh, David, Solomon. Uh, he, he did not give them wealth and then say, but you're no longer my child. Sorry, heaven's not for you. Have a good time. Some of God's children have been extremely wealthy over the years. More to the point, God himself is rich. We heard in our call to worship this morning that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the world and everything in it is his. Uh, Second Corinthians, Paul says it this way. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul's not saying... Jesus was rich, but understood that this was a bad thing and he had to purify himself and stop being vile. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that his wealth was not so fundamental to his identity, so important to him that he could not let it go for something more important. If I can be blunt, the Bible doesn't vilify wealth It says things like, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. What the Bible condemns is the love of money. It forbids enslavement to riches. And so when the Bible talks about the rich as a category, what it's referring to is those who are defined by their wealth. And this is where it gets uncomfortable. I think we know that that could obviously mean that you're a millionaire or or something like that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There are plenty of people who don't have a lot of money but are no less defined by it. How many people do you know who are always broke because they spend every penny they make trying to seek uh, acceptability, the latest fad, the latest fashion, trying to, to, to buy an image. How many people are broke because they are constantly pursuing get-rich-quick schemes? Their wealth defines them. 
Likewise, you could have vast wealth and not be defined by it. Your identity not tied to keeping or losing it, and so you end up being generous with it. The real question is whether your bank account is tied to your circumstances or your identity. When the Bible talks about the rich, it's defining them by their wealth because they do. Likewise, when Jesus talks here about the poor, the hungry, the grieving, the hated, he's talking about more than circumstances. He's talking about an identity. If you're not defined by your earthly wealth, if you, if you count your wealth in terms of the world to come, then you will always be poor in the world's eyes. If you're not defined by the food you eat, you'll always be hungry for something more, something lasting and eternal. If you understand that this world uh, was meant to be something far greater than it is, and it's fallen so far from that, that it could and should be greater, you will always grieve in the midst of that as you await heaven. If you refuse to be defined by the temporary and fleeting things of this world, if you refuse to find your happiness in things that cannot last, then this world will hate you because you're rejecting its entire system of value. And that's okay. One of the greatest indictments you will ever receive is the approval of the wicked. If a fool agrees with you, you might want to rethink your position. But there are few blessings in this world so sweet as the rebuke of an idiot. And the opposite is true. If you're going to belong to this world, you must define yourself by things that don't last. You must pursue riches that can only be spent in this life because you're making no plans for the life to come. You must avoid anything unpleasant and fill your life with entertainment, laughter, and pleasure because this is all you have. And you must stuff your face with delicacies because the only pleasure you're capable of understanding is a full stomach. Simply put, to belong to this world, you need to live by the motto, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And be rest assured, if that's the approach you take to life, you will find many who will cheer you on. They'll affirm you because it's their approach as well. And they'll gather around you and they'll dine at your table. And they'll gladly share your riches. But those who are defined by the treasures of this world need to be aware that it is a cursed treasure. That's what woe means in verses 24, 25, and 26. It means cursed. Cursed are you who are defined by your riches. Cursed are you who are defined by the food you eat. Cursed are you who fill your life with laughter, refusing to consider the weightier matters of life. When the whole world agrees with you, it should be a sign that you're doing something wrong. 
If you spend your entire life in pursuit of a treasure that can't last, you're pursuing a cursed treasure. And you're cursed with it. And so those who are defined by present riches and present comfort will spend all their time, all their energy, trying to eradicate all sickness, poverty, suffering, because they're searching for utopia in this world. Now, please don't understand me. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to the doctor. I drove my mom to the doctor this week. Jesus has just told us in chapter 5, it's the sick who need a doctor. I'm not saying that it's wrong to help the poor. The Bible commands us to do that. It demands that we do that. Nor am I saying that you must never laugh. And if I catch you laughing, you're in trouble. Always be gloomy. Find a dark cloud inside every silver lining. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you must not live under the delusion that you, you or we together can eradicate these things. The Bible promises that we will always have the poor among us. Anybody who says we can get rid of it is calling God a liar. The Bible says it's in heaven that our tears will finally be dried and be no more. And this is by God's design because it's in suffering and want that we learn to long for more. It's when we see that this life is fragile that we long for and place our hope in the resurrection. And that means that in a very real way, these things are blessings. In poverty, you learn to store up treasure in heaven. In hunger, you learn to long for heaven. In weeping, you learn to confess that you were made for something better. You learn to long for a place where every tear will be dried. Some people think that weeping shows a lack of faith, somehow a discontentment with with God's providence in your life. If I weep, I'm telling God that he's failed. I don't want to do that. If that were true, beloved, Jesus would never have wept. But he did. But more than that, God commands his people, weep, lament over your sin and the sins of others, over the sufferings of this life, over death. Because in weeping and lamenting, we are acknowledging that this world is not what it could be, that this world is not what it should be. In weeping and lamenting, we are confessing that we were made for something better. In weeping and lamenting, we are identifying with the eternal treasures of heaven rather than the cursed treasures of this world. Weeping is evidence of faith. It's a fitting response of citizens of heaven while they're living in a fallen world. Weeping is a sign that you are an heir of heaven. That you are blessed. Ultimately, there are two ways of looking at this world. You can either believe that this world is all you have or you can believe that there is another world to be revealed on the last day and that there are some blessings greater than anything this world has to offer and that what is eternal is infinitely greater than what is perishing. 
The question is, what do you cherish more? I know what Jesus cherished more. For Jesus, you were of infinitely greater value than riches and comfort. Let me read that verse again from 2 Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, he was willing to let go of all of his riches. He was willing to go hungry. He was willing to be hated. And he was willing to weep because that was the road he had to walk to redeem us from the consequences of our rebellion. And so those who belong to him understand this. It's not that they enjoy being in want. It's not that they they like going hungry It's not that they prefer weeping to laughter. It's simply that they understand what Jim Elliot famously said so many years ago. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so when you're struggling, when the world calls you poor, and when your hunger can never be satisfied with all the provisions of this world, And you know you were made for something better and you weep. And the world hates you for it. Jesus says, you are blessed. Because heaven is yours. Because one day every tear will be dried. Because one day you will eat in such abundance and never be hungry again. That reality is made visible for us in the Lord's Supper. Every week, the Lord calls you to his table. But he doesn't give us enough to fill our bellies. 1 Corinthians 11 says, If you're hungry, eat at home. That's not the point of this table. What we eat here is uh, is meager as the world sees portions. A little crumb of bread, a thimble of wine. And yet for, for those who have eyes to see, this is, this is a foretaste and an anticipation of a day when Jesus will welcome us into heaven and invite us to feast at his table, a feast that this world could not contain. This meal looks to future blessing with confidence and joy. This meal claims that Jesus and heaven are ours and they are more important to us than the treasures of this world could ever be. And so for us, this this is not just a meal. It's an identity. Let us pray. Our great God of eternal blessings, we confess that we often look for an inheritance that cannot last, a treasure that's cursed, and a provision that cannot satisfy. But the reality is that if we have Jesus, we are heirs of heaven. If we are hungry for more than this world has to offer, then we shall feast in heaven. And if we are hated by this world, we are loved by you, and we are blessed. Teach us to see, not as the world sees, but as you see. Teach us to recognize true blessings where they are found, and to never be taken in by cheap impostors. All of this we ask in the name of him who for our sakes became poor, that we might be rich. Amen.